podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good evening. We're starting just a mite early tonight. I wanted to get into the next chapter of Sam Cooper's Willful Blindness. We've been reading it every day for three days. So, so far, so good. And today is the next chapter. So we're reading the Vancouver model. And again, this is Willful Blindness, how a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the West by Sam Cooper. Here we go. The Vancouver model 1.0. So when I looked into Tam, I saw that he'd been ordered deported in the late 1990s, and yet he remained in Canada, gambling at the River Rock Casino and running a Macau-style junket operation for mainland Chinese whales. On December 5, 1988, Kwok Chung Tam was about six miles above the Pacific Ocean on a flight from Thailand. It was a good place for Tam to flush travel and identification documents down the toilet. The plane descended through fog and rain above Vancouver International Airport, a typical early winter day in Richmond, about 8 degrees Celsius. Tam was 30, thin and handsome with a childish side part hairstyle, and walking towards the Canadian border officials, he must have felt some nervousness, but also a reasonable degree of confidence. His wife and infant daughter had already flown from Thailand to Vancouver in July, and his wife had claimed refugee status using false documents. Tam was not the type of person you would imagine when picturing a refugee. He wasn't poor and powerless. He was so well-connected that while staying in Bangkok, he had been photographed meeting with the king of Thailand. Before flying into Pandora, into Bangkok, Tam had sold three factories in Guangzhou, the largest city of Guangdong, the booming southern province of China. Guangzhou, also known by its nickname, the Big Circle, was immense and full of contrast. Incredible urban masses gave way to parks full of trees and flowers, and Chinese temples rose over European boulevards in the old section of the city. The green and gray murk hovering over Guangzhou's new skyscrapers pointed to a terrifying expanse of industrialization. And the city straddled the Pearl River, a sludgy tributary marked by giant algae blooms and floating pig carcasses flowing down between vast blocks of factories between or towards Macau and Hong Kong and the South China Sea. Before leaving Guangzhou, Tam told everyone who owed him money to deposit the debts with his parents. And somehow, although Chinese citizens are barred from sending more than 50000 per year abroad, Tam had transferred as much as $5 million to his wife in Canada. The funds materialized from the mysterious underground banking channels that flow from Guangzhou to Hong Kong to Macau and into Vancouver. Transactions are underwritten by hidden pools of wealth worldwide, the adjusting of credit and debt and secret ledger books maintained between family members. A transaction paid out in Vancouver secures a return transaction in Hong Kong at a later date. When Tam rocked through customs in Vancouver, 
he admitted to sending funds to his wife in a BC bank account through a friend in Hong Kong. And for border officials, tracking Tam's flight to Vancouver was just like trying to unwind his underground fund transfers. He had taken a trip to, on Korean Air after arriving in Thailand, and possibly a side flight to Hong Kong, border officials believed. But after boarding a Singapore Airlines flight from Bangkok to Vancouver, he lost his travel records. Didn't matter, though. Tam knew that in Canada, you didn't need any supporting documents to declare yourself a refugee. And so he launched into his myth. He told Canadian officials that he had printed over 1,000 pro-democracy t-shirts at one of his garment factories in Guangzhou. And so the communists saw him as an enemy, he said. But Tam didn't seem to put much effort into the story. It's not like he was claiming to have run from the tanks in Tiananmen Square. He said his only real problem in China was paying high taxes. I had to come to Canada because it's a good country, Tam told the officials sitting with him. I think I'm a refugee because I have nowhere to go, and I have sold my businesses and give up, given up my licenses, but I had a good life in China, only they charge me so much because I'm rich. Dot, dot, dot. Kuang Chung Tam was an underworld entrepreneur, a heavyweight with the big circle boys, the cartel of mainland China criminals that since the 1980s has flourished internationally in conjunction with the exponential growth of China Incorporated. Tam was identified as among the most significant big circle boys who hit Canada in waves from about 1986 to 1990. One of the elite gangsters that Dr. Alex Chung of the University College of London in his 2019 study, Chinese criminal entrepreneurs in Canada called a decentralized network of career criminals comprised of illegal immigrants from Guangzhou, China. <coughs> Tam and his big circle associates exploited gaping weaknesses in Canada's border controls, citizenship, and criminal justice systems to establish a beachhead in Vancouver from which to dominate North American drug markets. More than any crime syndicate in Canada and the world, the big circle boys have perfected casino infiltration and money laundering by importing Macau-style underground banking to Vancouver. In the process, the Big Circle Boys have become the factor most responsible for transforming large portions of British Columbia's casino and real estate industries into narco-economies. And from their power bases in Vancouver and Toronto, they have turned Canada into a springboard to access the most lucrative United States drug markets. New York, Boston, Seattle, Miami, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and San Francisco where they have operatives and underground casinos. In the 1990s, the cartel had about two times as many members in Toronto compared to Vancouver, according to a report by the Federal Research Division of the U.S. Library of Congress. But their impact in Vancouver, the smaller Canadian city, is proportionately much greater. There's no dispute amongst, amongst criminologists about the cartel's profound influence in Vancouver's conversion into a hub for transnational crime. A 2015 report prepared by Canada's anti-money laundering agency, Fintrack, says, Vancouver is a critical money laundering hub for international drug money, dirty money from China, drugs, corruption, tax evasion, transnational criminal organizations, and local drug money. The report says Vancouver is especially vulnerable to money laundering because of its proximity to China and the U.S., its hot real estate market, 
and its busy marine port, which has been stripped of regulation by provincial and federal government funding cuts. The 2003 U.S. Library of Congress report, report lays some blame for deregulation of ports on the federal liberal government of Jean Chrétien in the early 1990s when Canada was targeting investment from Asia. Organized crime groups reportedly exercised great control over Canadian ports and were cited as major conduits for drug smuggling. The export and import of stolen automobiles and the theft of cargo, the report says, citing Canadian Senate committee findings. The committee additionally reported that the Shretan, sorry, government had been receiving warnings on the state of Canada's ports for six years, but continued to ignore the advice of the law enforcement officials. Of all the transnational narcos that operate in Canada, Sicilian and Calabrian mafias, Middle Eastern and European mobs, and the surging Mexican cartels, Chinese organized crime is the most significant criminal threat, according to the Canadian and U.S. Uh, intelligence reports. And the big circle boys are the super predators. Senior bosses of the cartel from Guangzhou are now to believed to be more wealthy and more powerful than Pablo Escobar ever was. So how did the big circle boys rise so quickly in North America, and especially in Vancouver? To understand their dominance and criminalization of BC casinos, I found Tam's life story incredibly illuminating. Dot, dot, dot. Tam first came onto my radar in 2017, even though court records said Tam had been barred numerous times from BC Lottery Corp casinos. I learned that Ross Alderson was forced to confront him in Richmond's River Rock Casino VIP room in 2011. In Alderson's recollection, it was time to send a message to the gang gambling kingpins. Tam was at a table with a young woman playing Baccarat, and Alderson served him band papers. He escorted the couple down an escalator to the ground floor where punters worked the slot machines. Tam didn't have anything to say, but his female friend did. You're making a big mistake, she told Alderson. So when I looked into Tam, I saw that he'd been ordered deported in the late 1990s, and yet he remained in Canada gambling at River Rock Casino and running a Macau-style junket operation for mainland Chinese whales. Tam was living the high life and, from what I could see, was impervious to the many, many investigations against him. I had to know why. So I questioned immigration f officials about Tam's case, they gave me nothing. In Canada, privacy laws are cited extremely broadly by the government, so I shared Tam's case with Brian Hill, a global news colleague who studies immigration cases. He contacted a valuable source. This government employee had already helped me to confirm an interesting fact. Several River Rock Casino VIPs investigated by Alderson for their connections to Paul King Jin and Kwang Chung Tam had obtained permanent residency through the largest immigration investment fraud case in Canadian history. In that case, a Richmond immigration broker named Shun Sunny Wang or Wang was convicted in 2015 for helping over 1,000 investors from China to cheat their way into Canada with fake passports, fake job offers, and fake Canadian home addresses. The government source came back to us in 2019 with a federal court file. It was an incredible 
record of Tam's history in Canada. Thousands of pages gathering dust in the volumes of immigration file, file warehouses in Ottawa. These were the records that Tam disclosed in his lengthy court battles fighting deportation to China. They included many unreported allegations, some of them shedding light on how Vancouver, the Vancouver model took root. I knew of estimations counting up to 1,000 big circle boys operating in Canada in the 1990s. You only had to isolate a few pages in Tam's file to see that for Canadian investigators, he stood out like a killer whale in a bathtub. By 1991, Vancouver police had pegged Tam as a major player. He and four other Chinese refugee claimants were arrested in a massive strike by officers. A report said Tam's cell was terrorizing wealthy Chinese-Canadian families with violent home invasions. There is no doubt that all five arrested are involved in organized crime in Vancouver, a Canadian immigration manager wrote. Also, in the early 1990s, a Vancouver gang squad officer, Doug Spencer, warned Canada Border Services Agency officers that Tam could almost get any ID he wanted, including documents in the names of other Chinese citizens. Wow. A record from Spencer meant something in British Columbia policing. He was respected by his fellow officers and hardened gangsters, too. His colleagues told me that Spencer had more underworld sources than anyone else in Vancouver. He knew gang affiliations and hierarchies like the creases of his hand and could locate a target within 30 minutes after making three or four phone calls. And many people agreed with Spencer about Tam's prominence in criminal resources. Court records showed me that Canadian immigration officials chose to name only Tam in a massive international heroin trafficking investigation that resulted in the arrest of 28 big circle boys. The case included two other bosses described by police informants as untouchable in mainland China and Hong Kong. These were the Chinese businessmen who controlled worldwide drug shipping routes, financed heroin exports to Vancouver, and moved cash proceeds worldwide. And in the early days, Tam was considered a step below them. But in 1999, when police seized 70 kilograms of heroin from a storage locker in Richmond, not far from the River Rock Casino, it was Tam who most fascinated the Canada Border Service Agency. The Asian crime cartel was so powerful that police said it could stockpile heroin and dictate the street price of the drug in North America, a CBSA intelligence file said. Its members had connection to underground banks in Hong Kong and the poppy fields of Burma. They did not hesitate to eliminate obstructions. One of them, a loan shark banned from BC casinos, Kuang Chung Tam, was also brazen enough to have his picture taken with the former BC premier, Glenn Clark, while seeking to open a casino. This particular photo had legendary status in Vancouver's police force, and Doug Spencer was there during the raid of Tam, Tam's Burnaby home in 1998. Vancouver gang cop Murray Phillips had spotted the portrait sitting on Tam's living room mantle. Hey Doug, come here, Phillips had called. Remember I told you these guys are connected up above? Spencer's jaw dropped, and then he had to stop himself from laughing. It was a giant portrait of Tam and Clark, basically arm in arm. 
The context of the CBSA's report citing the photo of Tam and Clark was the RCMP's so-called Casino Gate investigation. It was alleged that several Vancouver business people sought to influence Clark and his NDP government to approve a Burnaby Casino license application. Clark was forced to step down in 1999, but Clark has always denied wrongdoing in the Casino Gate, and he was acquitted of all charges in 2002. Casino Gate is seen as ancient history in BC gambling lore, but the allegation that Kwong Chun Tam was involved in the Burnaby Casino license application had never been revealed publicly. Tam was never named, never even hinted at among those accused of making approaches to Glenn Clark and the NDP. So this was new and relevant and one of those rewarding moments at work when I feel a bit like an archaeologist. Had the Big Circle Boys tried to own a BC casino? Had they tried more than once? Did existing BC casinos have any secret backers lurking behind the supposedly legit owners? The TAM file raised a lot of questions for me, and the file also showed that Cheryl Shapka, a Bulldog CBSA investigator in Vancouver, was fascinated with TAM's frequent proximity to political leaders. VPDs found and seized a whole bunch of photographs taken of Tam, including one where he was shaking Clark's hand in his office, and one where Tam was shaking hands or standing with the King of Thailand, in an email from Shapka to Vancouver Police said. I know a lot of other people who saw the photos. Do you know what happened to them? In 2021, I asked Clark about his photo with Tam, and he said, zero relationship with this man, zero discussion of casinos. Never actually heard of the man until recent news stories. Dot, dot, dot. It's not just CBSA documents that attest to the power of Kwong Chung Tam and the Big Circle Boys. According to the U.S. government intelligence reports, police first detected the spread of Guangzhou cartel in the 1980s, and by the early 1990s, it had established criminal cells throughout Canada where it had become and where it had come to dominate the heroin trade within the country. The United States-Canada border, border Drug Threat Assessment of December 2001 estimated that 95% of all heroin entering Canada originates from the Golden Triangle region, where the borders of Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar meet, which is controlled by the Big Circle Boys, and the cartel ships the opioids from southern China and Hong Kong into Vancouver, where they warehouse and distribute the supply across North America, controlling the price swings and collecting cash in major cities. According to that 2003 report by the Federal Research Division of the U.S. Library of Congress, they called it worrisome factors in Canada, allowed the big circle boys to infiltrate North America. Faced with the likely spread of Asian organized crime and given border porosity and immigration laws for the foreseeable future, Canada will continue to serve as an ideal transit point for crime groups to gain a foothold in the United States, the report says. Several factors continue to support these criminal and terrorist groups' use of Canada. The report underlined the loophole exploited by Tam's family and all big circle boys in the 1980s and 1990s. Canada's refugee policy had been very welcoming since the mid-1980s, when this, 
when the Canadian Supreme Court guaranteed a hearing for anyone entering the country claiming to be a refugee, even if that person could provide no documentation. Prior to 2000, the report said as many as 60% of all refugee claimants in Canada possessed insufficient documentation or no documentation at all. And this weakness meant the Big Circle Boys could scale up lucrative human smuggling schemes because Canada relied on uh, relied only on paper identification for immigrants, forged versions of which are available in the black market for roughly $1,000. This policy also allowed the Big Circle Boys to traffic women from Asia and run sex slave rings based in the United States that have apparent links to such activities in Toronto. Most Canadians want their government to have humanitarian immigration policies. But the flip side of a porous immigration vetting system is a society in which Asian women are forced into selling their bodies in underground casinos and body houses in big North American cities. They are victims to paying extortionate debts to big circle boy loan sharks and Toronto and Vancouver are the hubs of this human trafficking used to supply gangs in the United States with sex slaves. Dot, dot, dot. Sidebar, this isn't in the book, but some of those women are probably Native Americans stolen in the Pacific Northwest. When Tam responded to questions from Global News regarding our 2019 report, on his case file, he denied connections to the Big Circle Boys and through his lawyer cautioned us. And Tam wrote in an affidavit in July 2016, I am not now nor have I ever been a member of a gang, triad, or criminal organization. But thousands of pages of Canadian records say the opposite. And that warning from Doug Spencer that Tam could get any ID raises a question that often surfaces in major Chinese organized crime figure files. The kingpins from Guangzhou would habitually claim they were enemies of the Chinese Communist Party, and they would suffer if they were returned to China, but many repeatedly traveled back and forth between Canada and China. And Tam's file read like a book of Chinese state connections. Police found a business card for China's consul general in Tam's home. They also seen as the business card of the vice president of China Poly Technologies, a murky arms trading and military industrial company that is owned by Red Princelings of the People's Liberation Army. And the BCNDP premier, Glenn Clark, wasn't the only Canadian politician whom Tam approached. His RCMP file shows that in 1992, Tam signed up as a member number 650. From, for the Vancouver Society in Support of Democratic Movement, a group run by Raymond Chan, a Richmond politician, elected as a Liberal MP in 1993. Chan became Canada's Minister of Multiculturalism, a rainmaker fundraiser for the Liberal Party in the Chinese business community, and an associate of billionaire migrants from China, such as Vancouver real estate developer Muyang Michael Chang. Cheng is the son of the former governor and Communist Party chief of China's Hebei province, Weigao Cheng. Chan had not responded to my questions about his fundraising for the liberals and Tam's membership in Chan's pro-democracy society. 
But while Tam was rubbing shoulders with Raymond Chan in the early 1990s, police were already asking fundamental questions. Sorry, I lost my place. Police were already asking fundamental questions about Tam's source of wealth, the types of questions that I would hammer on after 2010 when I started reporting on Vancouver's insane real estate prices. In Canada's less than four years as a refugee claimant owns three homes in Vancouver in a Vancouver luxury auto sales business, mortgage-free, and even though he has not worked and declared no wealth, a TAM immigration memo in 1991 said, and RCMP files that year alleged TAM was involved in illegal gambling, heroin importation and dealing, alien smuggling, credit card fraud, and weapons trafficking. The questions about Tam's wealth never went away. The applicant is currently un unemployed, another immigration official wrote in 2004. Wow. So the application had not provided me with an explanation on how he supported himself or his family during this period of 1999 to 2004. The Vancouver police also believe that Tam's wife was forging identity documents and passports in the family's Burnaby home during the 1990s, and yet Tam seemed utterly immune to criminal charges until 1998. Tam's violent loan sharking operations in Vancouver and Richmond casinos finally led police to raid his Burnaby home. They found Walther PPK and Ruger semi-automatic pistols complete with silencers and ammunition plus a pound of raw heroin and caches used to stamp heroin for sale, stating it was 100% pure in an email from Cheryl Shapka. In the loan sharking complaint that triggered the raid, a 60-year-old woman named Mrs. Chow said she had borrowed 19000 from Tam to, get to, to gamble but lost her bets. She signed her Mercedes-Benz over to Tam, but it still wasn't enough to satisfy him, so Tam's wife and a man named Hugh Quinn Chang went to Mrs. Chow's Vancouver home. Tam's wife told her she owed the boss money. Mrs. Chow refused to open the door, so Hu Quinn Chang hired a locksmith. The gangsters forced their way in and Hu Quinn Chang killed or threatened to kill Mrs. Chow unless she signed over all of her furniture. Mrs. Chow signed the papers, and the Big Circle Boys sent a moving truck over, but Mrs. Chow decided to go to the police, a rarity in Vancouver loan sharking cases. There was some debate among Canadian immigration officials in the late 1990s about whether there was enough evidence to deport Tam's family, but the Burnaby, Burnaby raid changed that conversation. One day in 1998, Dave Quartermain of the CBSA summarized Tam's file to a colleague this way. Tam is a heavyweight in the big circle boys. He has multiple outstanding charges and is likely to be convicted. I can remove both husband and his wife, but I'm going to wait for his convictions. But an official named Bob Benger seemed less convinced. Judging by his occupation, the thought of transporting stolen autos to the PRC immediately came to mind. Thought he might be one of the one of the gang. So far, I don't see any redeeming features to this case, but I have to give them their opportunity. Quartermain fired back with a flood of details that left nothing to the imagination. Subject owns a car dealership. His car is supplied by extortion. 
He and his minions hand out cash at casinos and, and approach fellow Chinese who need dollars for betting and give them loans at loan shark rates. Then when they cannot pay, collects their cars and in one case, the house. Was recently arrested for extortion. Basically, they took a car and then brought a moving truck in and cleaned out the house of all furniture. He was also in position uh, in possession of an improperly obtained PRC path, passport. Confirmed obtained from the PRC consulate in Vancouver under a different name. In research, uh, recent search warrant of the house, a cache of weapons found seven ounces of raw opium heroin, $270,000 worth of checks made out to Tam from alleged extortions, stolen jewelry, and buckets of cash. In a search of storage locker warehouse, mountains of oriental furniture. Convictions look good on this one, Quartermain concluded. Wife also implicated. Want him convicted before removals take place. But Quartermain had misplaced confidence in Canada's legal system. Tam's wife pleaded guilty to possession of property through extortion. And Tam faced the same loan sharking charge plus weapons charges. Some of the charges evaporated after Tam's wife pleaded guilty, a ruling says. And the remaining charges against Tam were dropped because the case was adjourned so many times. The delays were caused by Tam's wife, who claimed to be too ill to appear in court. Oh, that's corruption. In a ruling that seemed sympathetic to Tam, the judge found that none of the adjournments can be laid at the feet of Mr. Tam. The judge also seemed open to Tam's explanation for the seven ounces of raw opium heroin found in his home. He arrived in Canada in 1988 seeking refugee status, the judge wrote in 2002. He has a wife and children. He was introduced to, to the smoking of heroin not long after he arrived in this country and became addicted to it. In early 1998, he was ordered deported for some reason. This order has not been executed. So Tam wasn't convicted and deported in the loan sharking case. Meanwhile, violence followed him like a curse. Police records says Tam was shot outside his Vancouver home, the result of extortion carried out by Tam on other Asian organized crime members. Wow. But Tam refused to talk to the police and shrugged off his bullet wound. Dot, dot, dot. In the 1999 case that led to the arrest of 28 Big Circle Boys, Tam was charged with conspiracy to import and traffic heroin. He was acquitted of these charges in 2002 because a judge found wiretap evidence in the case was inadmissible. But confidential informant records filed in the case explained a lot about the Big Circle Boys' international narco-smuggling methods. When I match records like Dave Quartermain's emails on Tam with these informant records, it connected all the pieces of the Vancouver Model 1.0 puzzle. There have been many technological advances in the model since 1999, but the cyclical flow of cash and contraband is the same. Opioids or chemical precursors come from corrupted Asian ports and into Richmond and Vancouver ports to be released across North America. And the criminal proceeds are shipped back to Richmond and Warehouse, where the cash is diffused into Vancouver's economy and ultimately transferred back to China. One of the methods the heroin importation used by Big Circle Boys was the use of human couriers using air transportation. The 1999 case informant files say it would cost amount redacted by judge 
to pay off people to help bring the heroin onto an aircraft in Thailand. But the massive loads of narcotics were hidden in the bowels of ships from Guangzhou to Shenzhen, and sometimes in the shipping containers with false bottoms, and sometimes in packages disguised as containers of soy sauce and rice noodles. And drug cash, where it housed in Vancouver, ultimately had to go back to Hong Kong and China to fund more drug exports. All heroin proceeds generally go back to Southeast Asia, specifically China. And as Canadian currency is not liked in China, it is generally transferred to Hong Kong and converted to Hong Kong currency, the informant files say. From Hong Kong, the money is transferred to China. There were many methods to move cash back to China, some simple, come on, come on page, and some com complex. The heroin importers generally ship Canadian cash in suitcases to Hong Kong. They use human couriers to do this, the files say. Another method for moving money from Canada to Hong Kong was through Canadian companies, which also had connections to Hong Kong. Cash would be given to cooperating businesses in China and taken out in Hong Kong. The latter method, a form of trade-based money laundering, expanded year by year and allowed the Big Circle Boys' corruption to expand into broader portions of Canada's economy. But the Vancouver model couldn't function without the blessing of officials inside China. Not just anyone can put together a heroin load. To do so, one would have to have contacts in China with a set group of people, the 1999 case files say. And in 1990s, in the 1990s, two families, the Big Circle Boys, had the best contacts. Both were seen as a step above Kwok Chung Tam's family at the time. Kwok Chia Chan, boy, this is tough. Kwok Chester Chan and Kwok Hung Chan led one group. They seem like the same guy, they're not. Um, <clears throat> back to the page. The eldest brother, Kwong Hung Chan, controlled the cell from Hong Kong, running its banking operations, moving drug cash worldwide, and brokering heroin shipments. Ah Hut Chut and Chester operated in Toronto and Vancouver. And in 1999, it was Ah Chut who had organized a 70-kilo shipment of heroin that police found stashed in a mini storage locker at 8520 Cami Road in Richmond. Ah was well-established in China among high-ranking police and government officials. Why couldn't he have an easier name? Informants told police he was untouchable in China. The other cell that controlled North American heroin markets was led by a man named Si Chun Li in Vancouver. Informants said he loved to meet, or he loved to bet big in Macau casinos, and it was his cell that smuggled several boatloads of Chinese migrants that arrived off the coast of British Columbia late in the summer of 1999. Si Chun Li and his cell was controlled by his uncle in Hong Kong, a man called Ning Ya. An informant said that they were involved in the monthly shipments destined for Vancouver, Toronto, and New York that continually flooded the market. The informant said that Ning Yat was an international crime figure who was very wealthy and had lots of property, and he was untouchable by the law enforcement authorities. 
Informants told police that these cells laundered money out of restaurants in Vancouver and Toronto, establishments that were bought with Hong Kong drug money. Wow. And cartel members were seen at all hours of the night traveling between these restaurants, government casinos, and underground betting houses. But the BC government casinos had a special purpose. They were used to give drug cartels deals the stamp of official business. These drug traffickers like to conduct money exchanges in casinos, informants said. The drug trafficker could, could then have the casino as an explanation for the money if stopped by the police. So police gathered a massive cache of intel in the case against the 28 Big Circle Boys, but they struck out in Canadian courts. It's interesting to consider how the history of opioid trafficking may have changed in Canada if this major investigation could have knocked the Big Circle Boys off stride. For Tam and other cartel bosses, the Canadian court victories came at a pivotal time. Prices for heroin in North America and Australia crashed in 2000. It's not clear why. Maybe the cartel bosses wanted it that way. In any case, they were ready to shift into chemical narcotics, especially ecstasy and methamphetamines. And they only had to transfer supply chains from the poppy fields of Burma to factories churning out chemical precursors in remote regions of the Golden Triangle or the industrial expanses of Guangdong. And in British Columbia, many drug labs proliferated in many homes near the U.S. border. The cartel shipped chemicals from China and into Richmond and Vancouver following the same routes as heroin and then mixed and pressed the precursors into pills and basement labs before moving them in car and truckloads down the west coast to Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles and east to Calgary and Winnipeg. And they sent pill shipments out of Vancouver to Australia and Japan. Once the Big Circle Boys had mastered the pill business, they had the template in place for fentanyl distribution. Okay. And in the mid-2000s, Kwong Chung Tan would set up a family drug lab in Richmond. Police raided it, leading to one of the few minor criminal charges that ever stuck to Tam. The case didn't lead to his deportation and didn't keep him out of River Rock Casino, but it created a paper trail in Tam's immigration file that led to a major break. Come on, Paige. In my Vancouver model investigation, I found that a law firm run by the federal liberal MP was involved in a condo development for Tam and family members charged in the drug lab bust. The Big Circle Boys were dominating the global drug trade because they had political connections in China and Hong Kong, but it looked like they had powerful powerful friends in Canada too. And that's where I gotta leave it until tomorrow where we talk about chapter four, the mission in Hong Kong. Thank you guys. Thank you, Isaac and Joe, for stopping in. Uh, this has been the the third chapter of Willful Blindness by Sam Cooper in the 2022 Sanction Your Mind, Unsanction Your Mind, rather, <laughs> reading series. We'll continue again tomorrow at 7.20. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. 
Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call-In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.